0: The What Happens in Vegas podcast is hosted by Dr. Stephanie Canestrero, who is a functional medicine practitioner and owner of the Vegas Clinic. Through each episode, Dr. Stephanie will share her wealth of knowledge and insights from being in the functional medicine industry for more than 10 years. Through solo and guest episodes, the What Happens in Vegas podcast will break down the fundamentals of how our bodies function and tangible ways to maintain a healthy mind, body, and soul. She will welcome experts from around the world to discuss gut health, high performance, biohacking, longevity, and so much more. Listen in each week to learn and leave empowered with tangible knowledge to enhance and live your best life.
1: We're using the worst kinds of of substances and I just, you know, it always freaked me out to think about, you know, going in that direction as a farmer and I just kind of dug in deep to like there's got to be another way that this can't be the way that you know we're going to sustain a healthy human population
2: okay we have matt sheffer here today i'm very very excited for this talk because it's going into something that i actually want to learn more about and that's organic farming and farming in general and just how the environment affects our health and our food so matt thank you so much for being on here i we've been trying to uh Get this to happen a few times. So here we are. (laughs) Thanks so much for
1: being here. Um, it's great to be here, Stephanie. Thank you.
2: Yeah, so I just want you to start off just by uh introducing yourself a little bit to everyone and then we'll dive into everything.
1: So yeah, my name is Matt Sheffer. I have a almost you know 15 years worth of experience in in production agriculture. I'm currently uh the managing director of a nonprofit um based in the Hudson Valley called Hudson Carbon um Hudson Carbon is a is a nonprofit research center based on a 500 acre farm uh, in the Hudson Valley and we focus on uh, designing and implementing research projects and also uh working at the state and federal level on agricultural policy uh kind of related to the interface between um, agriculture, ecology, and, and climate change. Um, I'm a, I'm an organic farmer. That's um, sort of the kind of agriculture that I jumped into when I first started out. Um, and the, the systems we've been researching here in the Hudson Valley are uh, very much um, organic, regenerative systems that, um, in my opinion, have immense power to not only feed the world, but solve some of our most um, pressing mm-hmm. issues related not only to climate, but also to to ecology, to you know uh, crises around you know contaminated drinking water mm-hmm. and collapse uh, biodiversity and so forth.
2: Mm-hmm. And so part of the collapse of biodiversity, and I'm going to be jumping around because like I like I said, I don't understand this completely, but the little bit I do know, and um, I'll, I just will ask questions based on that. And then if you can just, you know, elaborate to wherever it goes, then then that's amazing. But something sure. that people don't understand, and it was an aha moment for me, because, you know, there's all of this talk about carbon and people think cows, like we have to kill all these cows, like you know, like, as if that that's the thing causing like our, our our biggest problems, like people should become vegan and people should stop. So, so, I mean, mm-hmm. first of all, I want to talk about because you guys change your, you rotate your crops and I, and I don't want to butcher this, but you, and, and you know, the importance of grass, right? So, So, and we know that, that cows, they graze on grass when they're raised properly. So can you kind of explain to people just how important that is and how, when we change all our crops, even to like a a vegan based diet and we need to, you know, decimate a lot of grass to, to, to plant these crops that only use the top layer of the soil. Like, can we, can we dive into that kind of stuff?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great, a great place to start. So yeah maybe i'll start by kind of painting a picture of like mm-hmm. the current landscape of agricultural production particularly livestock production so um we've gotten to a place where you know the the industrial model is like super super consolidated and super specialized where you know the farmers are only growing a small number of crops and are doing so at a very large scale um, and a lot of times those crops um, if they're not going to, and, 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 you know, these crops are predominantly corn and soybean and some, and, 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 wheat, of course, but, um, corn and soy are kind of the biggest. Uh, and a lot of times those, those crops, um, if they're not going to ethanol plants or, or biodiesel plants, they're going to make uh, livestock feed. And a lot of times, um, you know, the, the majority of, beef cattle finished in this country are coming out of what's called a a feedlot. And that is a – there's another acronym for it. It's called a CAFO, which stands for Confined Animal Feeding Operation, but it's essentially a factory in which animals are concentrated into a small area, fed uh, what are called concentrated Grain rations, so lots of corn, lots of soy, to increase, you know, energy and, and, and protein intake, and all the while, you know, these animals are not sort of able to express their their own behaviors, which are, you know, uh, ruminant animals. There's, again, focusing on cows here, uh, being outside on pasture and grazing, and eating, you know, the natural diet that they've evolved to eat, and so in the in the public discourse. We've, you know, come to you know vilify the the cow as this horrible, you know, contributor to climate change. And there's a couple of ways in which cows produce methane. So I just want to be, you know, be clear on that for your listeners that um, c- cattle do produce uh, methane through through digestion. The primary source there is called enteric methane, where cows are actually belching out methane as they're as their digestive system is, is processing and breaking down uh, whatever they're eating. But then also their their manure uh, has the potential to produce a significant amount of methane as well. But again, these are, these are natural processes and they're very much sort of concentrated and pronounced when in that uh, industrial setting, whereas, you know, on a more sort of appropriate distributed scale across, you know, pasture where animals are grazing and 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 rotating um, in a sort of intensive way, the, the the methane impact, you know, might not be uh, as intense, and also that impact is being offset by the natural processes involved in the the grassland ecosystem that um, could also be sequestering um, carbon dioxide emissions as well. And so there's this t- there's this term that's you know, used, uh, I forget who coined it, but it's, it's not the cow, it's the house. So it's important not to just take all animal agriculture and lump it into this horrible industrial category, uh, because, you know, that's, that's only one way to do it. And that's the most impactful and, you know, most ecologically uh, destructive way to, to raise animals. Whereas on the other hand, having animals as part of a more diversified system where crops are rotated uh, and moving out of annual crop production into into grassland for some years and allowing allowing soils to rest and 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 restore fertility is is a way in which you can you can not only mitigate those climate effects but also produce really healthy and nutritious food and sort of create abundance on on smaller pieces of land. Anyway, maybe I'll stop there and, and we can we can yeah. dig deeper. But I hope that's yeah. a good overview.
2: That was a good overview, and so I just want, because, you know, I don't think people understand um, how grass enriches the soil, so just a little bit of background on that.
1: So grasses, and then also, you know, other types of species of plants that are often, you know, part of pasture and, and, and hay ground um, include uh, legumes like, like clover and alfalfa and tree foils, and, uh, and then also more sort of broadleaf type plants they They're all perennial, uh which means that they they go dormant in in the winter or in the sort of dormant season but, uh de- depending on you know how close to the equator you are mm-hmm. um but 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 they're perennial, so they come back every year and so they, they they're able to create much more robust root systems mm-hmm. um and are able to create uh sort of more stable and sort of long-standing habitat if you will within the soil Uh, their their roots penetrate deeper they create uh, important relationships with soil bacteria and 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 fungi and are able then to uh, build soil carbon much more efficiently than annual plants whose living roots are in the ground for you know a, a fraction of the year you know Depending, again, depending on where you are, where I'm at up in the Hudson Valley, you know, the growing season for, say, a corn crop is about, you know, 90 to 100 days, mm-hmm. right? But uh, perennial grasses, you know, pop as soon as it gets warm in the spring and are photosynthesizing throughout the entire growing season and, mm-hmm. and uh, are are able to turn over a lot of carbon and, and are sort of a net, net sink of, of carbon, according to a lot of research.
2: Yeah. And, and part of that has to do with what, when an animal's grazing on these type of plants, isn't it like a, and I heard this years ago, so you just have to correct me if I'm wrong, but it something about like the certain point of growth. So they graze on it. And then that certain part where it sprouts, it it creates more carbon dioxide. Is that correct? Not carbon dioxide. Sorry. Uh, It neutralizes more carbon dioxide.
1: Sure. I think, I think what you might be alluding to is that the, the, the process of grazing and sort of the impact, the animal impact, if you will, of, of grazing has has a has the ability to kind of uh, increase um, the rate at which a plant Photosynthesize. photosynthesizes, photosynthesizes, and therefore yes. takes up carbon. Yeah, okay. exactly. So, and I think that has a lot to do with uh, the fact that you know grazing can, if it's timed properly, keep plants in a more vegetative state rather than yep. a reproductive state. In other words. Okay. You know what when a when a cow you know takes a bite of the top of a plant you know uh, early on in its growth phase uh it's going to be sending you know continuing to send more energy to vegetative growth rather than letting that plant kind of move into re- re- reproductive growth so it, it it kind of keeps that process going um and then also the physical impact of the animal has the effect of sort of incorporating that surface residue into the top of the soil uh, and, and 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 facilitates microbial turnover. Um, yes. Whereas if it, you know, without grazing, it would sort of sit on the surface. Some of it might decompose, but a lot of it can also just oxidize and end up as, as CO2.
2: Yeah. And then the microbes in the soil are very important for what you grow in that soil like we have foods that are you know devoid of of magnesium now because we've lost like the diversity in the actual soil can you speak to that a,
1: a little bit yeah absolutely so I, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of uh the rhizosphere but it's this this area around plant roots where you know plants interact with bacteria and fungi and other and other microorganisms in the soil and there's this economy of exchange um, happening in that zone where you know, plants are uh, offering carbohydrates and sugars uh, through their through their root tips um, and exchanging that for other micronutrients that say uh, mycorrhizal fungi can pull from deeper in the soil depths um, and also ba- certain types of bacteria you know are are metabolizing uh, organic material and creating this process called mineralization, which is making these nutrients available to plants in in the specific forms that they can use them. Um, and so there's this great, you know, beautiful uh, again economy of exchange that happens in in, in healthy soils. Uh, but mm-hmm. you know, con- contrast that with um, you know industrial chemical agriculture where you know a lot of uh harmful um herbicides are being used particularly glyphosate glyphosate is um was was originally designed as a metal chelator to clean out uh you know mill scales from you know underground tanks so it's underground like water tanks and other types so it was its original use was not for for agriculture at all, uh, but its chemical composition has, you know, has the has the ability to chelate micronutrients in the soil, like magnesium. So, mm-hmm. overuse of of glyphosate year year over year can um have a negative effect on uh, immobilizing key nutrients in the soil. Uh, but also, it has uh, antimicrobial effects as well, where it can be killing killing off um, beneficial colonies of, of bacteria that can also you know mobilize nutrients. So the yeah. overuse of 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 agrochemicals can have like this multifaceted uh, harmful effect in, in soils that actually make the food that's produced less net, less nutrient dense and less mm-hmm. less healthy. Food.
2: Yeah, so we're definitely gonna like dive into glyphosate because I have some things to say about that too, for what it does to humans. But I just want to touch really quickly, go back to, because you mentioned um, the ruminant gut that the that the, the cows have. Mm-hmm. And I kind of want to touch how, on how that means they should be grazing and eating grass and hay and perennials and all these things that we mentioned. Um, however, here they are creating all these crops, spraying the crops. They are full of glyphosate, glyphosate themselves. And they're feeding cows food that their guts are not able to handle. And what that actually does to, first of all, it's doing something to the environment because now we're not having like these, the, the grass, we're not, um, you know, rotating crops. We're using pesticides and then, we're feeding the animal that we're about to eat something that it makes it very inflamed and it's very problematic for the cow. So, so what does that do to us eating the cow? And what does it do to the cow that when they're eating these improper foods for what they're able to digest?
1: Yeah. I, I can't speak to like specifics because my background is not totally in like, you know, animal, animal health, but I can speak generally to the fact that like, yeah, uh, ruminant livestock, uh, ruminant species like, like cows, but also, uh, you know, sheep and goats, they have this, uh, digestive system that is evolved to convert very complex carbohydrates. So like, uh, cellulose, hemicellulose, lignin, things that, that, that a human or, or other, what are the monogastric mammals can't, can't derive any, any nutrition from. So cows have, you know, what you can, you know, think of as like four stomachs where, mm-hmm. um, you know, they'll, they, they have this very complex process by which they can take these high, you know, high cellulose, high lignin, um, you know, plants like grasses and convert them into protein, you know, alongside a very rich uh, microbiome that that the, that the animals have in their in their gut so they're 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 really efficient uh, at doing that and there's you know so much marginal land across the world that you know you can't grow high value crops on and that's why livestock that's, that that that's one argument um, for for the need for livestock which is that they can they can convert you know food that we can't eat into extremely rich nutrient dense uh, protein that is 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 really healthy for us um but feeding So feeding livestock, um, things like, like these really, uh, simple, like carbohydrates that you would get from, some corn and other, other annual grains. Um, you know, it, it does impact their, their health adversely. I mean, these, these animals are often kept healthy and kept alive even with high doses of antibiotics exactly, and lots of, you know, other interventions, uh, that you know keep these animals long enough in order to kind of you know produce the maximum you know yield uh but
2: it fattens them up too because they're actually like quite lean animals right when they're eating but they get so inflamed and when your body's inflamed it stores toxins right into the fat so we actually when you're eating that marbleized steak that was finished with corn or potato or anything else that it's not really meant to eat well you're eating disease mixed with. Some some of the antibiotics that they give them, they inject them with antibiotics in order to act like because it acts like a steroid and anti-inflammatory for the for the cows. and you're actually getting exposed to that because the are just like our bodies will kick toxins out and store it in fat. That's what happens with these cows. So when you think you're eating this yeah. like fancy steak, you're actually getting pretty toxified, like lots of toxins exposed in your body,
1: yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. and also, um, if you're if the animal is eating high high doses of uh, uh, these concentrated grain rations that include corn and, and soy, the um, the omega six concentration of exactly. that of that steak is is way out of whack. Whereas yeah. if, if the cow was you know fed and finished on grass, you have this great balance between omega threes and omega sixes. Yeah, and you know. We can get into the whole kind of uh, issue of, you know, an imbalance in omega-6s and what that does. I can't speak to that as well as you could probably, inf- but that's another yeah. consideration. But
2: that's that's what it... With- that's what it does to the fat. The fat is full of these inflammatory omega sixes because we are supposed to have omega sixes. Like our balance is supposed to be four to one, actually, in favor of omega sixes. We're actually often depleted in omega threes, though, for multiple reasons. But one of them is that we're eating these unhealthy cows and they're not good omega sixes. So there's like healthy omega sixes and they're not, they're inflammatory. So it's causing, you know, oxidative damage to our own bodies our cells aren't being formed properly, like it's, it's pretty toxic. So you want to eat cows that are grass fed, grass finished, you're helping the environment when you do so you're helping farmers that are trying to do things right. And you should get to know where you're buying your meat from because these industrial raised animals are unhealthy for you. And that's why meat gets a bad rap, but it's really the quality, right? So we always talk about quality and, and you're going into the quality of like proper farming, which is, like beyond important if you don't know how important this is yet then you know it's it's time to really like start to get grounded in in what keeps us alive and healthy so maybe we can now go into the glyphosate side because what we didn't mention too was these cows are also eating glyphosate and they usually have these rich Microbial diversity, like you talked about in their gut, that makes them break down the grass and the cellulose and all this stuff that us humans cannot break down. But glyphosate, when they get exposed to that, it actually, it inhibits a pathway in, in, in bugs called the shikimate pathway. And it does, humans don't use this shikimate pathway. So that's how they made it like it's safe for us, but we are made up more of our microbiome than we are our own cells if you're to actually get down to the nitty gritty of it right we have more genetics of of other bugs than we do our own so when we intake glyphosate which we're all getting exposed to even if we eat organic because of how much it's been overused then we end up killing our good bacteria in in a it's, it's almost like a reverse antibiotic because the shikimate pathway is used by a lot of our good bacteria and not all of our bad bacteria. So we actually end up with a more pathogenic microbiome. So glyphosate is toxic, toxic, toxic. And, you know, since the real, like it started getting used, uh, autism rates have increased. I mean, uh, you know, Crohn's colitis, um, celiac, mm-hmm. all of those things have increased and, And so I just want you to, you, you touched on glyphosate. So, you know, it, it damages the soil, damages us, and they're still able to use it. It's banned in multiple European countries, but why are they still using it here in Canada, and the United States?
1: That's a great, that's a great question of one that I often, you know, one that often frustrates me and, um, and upsets me as I, you know, think about it, but it's just, Yeah. I mean, we, we have such an entrenched agricultural industry, Mm -hmm. uh, in, in this country, uh, like, likewise in Canada, I assume, uh, that is in, in many ways, like, you know, like pharmaceutical industry, like Mm -hmm. sort of captured there's, there's this concept of regulatory capture where the industry is, is essentially making rules that, that, that benefit, you know, themselves as corporations, rather than paying attention to what's what's good for humans, what's good for the environment, what's good for, you know, healthy communities. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just, it's a product of uh, industrial corporate power, for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's penetrated into into the culture of, of agriculture over the last, you know, 40, 50 years, such that farmers, you know, have a hard time envisioning a world in which they're growing their crops without things like glyphosate Mm -hmm. like it's hard for them to see because it's it's this this message has been has been uh you know Mm -hmm. proffered all around the the world you know and has sort of seeped into the consciousness of of these farmers that you know they're they're there to feed the world and you can't feed the world using organic agriculture these these types of products are important because they, they they increase yields and that's another thing. It's like this—you know—everybody bows to to that one metric, like mm-hmm. yield. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at the expense of, you know, the quality of the crop for sure, but also mm-hmm. at the expense of the environment. And yeah, I think it's again, it's a product of of you know regulatory capture and the sort of entrenched culture that's emerged uh, out of it. That agrochemical industry has has uh, has has been able to create yeah I don't know it's 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 a really it's a really tough situation
2: yeah it's it's crazy but yeah the it's all I guess comes back to the bottom line of who's making all this money off of things that are you know widely used and they'll try to you know they don't care who they hurt it seems like but it's it's kind of crazy to me because then I think like They have families too. Like, and I know for a fact that their kids are not all protected from what's going on. Like there was some stat that came out. It's 54% of kids in the United States have some sort of chronic disease. That's insane. Mm -hmm. That is insane. Like make it stop. But yeah, I mean, and there's multiple things that go into that, but I mean, what we put into our body is, is ultimately going to protect us or hurt us further or stop, you know, like, I mean, because- you know, what they're doing to the environment under the guise of them protecting you are, are, you know, chemtrails, which, which you see like, you know, these lines of clouds across the sky that are actually cloud seeding and all of these crazy practices that they're claiming is helping you. But all of that falls down to our soil and we're getting uh, exposed to um, aluminum at higher rates than ever. Like we have new frequencies coming at us in the form of, of EMFs that are, Um, affecting our health. So like, if we can at least get like some healthy food into us, like, you know, we can maybe protect our, our body might have the defenses to protect out of all these other chemicals coming at us. And um, do you know a lot about atrazine pesticide by any chance?
1: I know enough to be, to be dangerous. Um, I know that it's a, it's been demonstrated to be an endocrine disruptor and Mm -hmm. that there's, some really interesting research that's uh been shown to uh that that, that's shown that atrazine can induce like spontaneous sex change in amphibians frogs in particular yeah Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Uh, scary so think about a human developing in the womb right does it not look like a little bit like a tadpole does not like you know it's like you know embryologically (laughs) and we're going to exposed to it in our water. It's in our water. Like don't drink tap water, like at least get a filter, but you know, there's like a lot. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, again, and that's still being used, correct? Atrazine.
1: Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. So things like, uh, Paraquat and, and two four D. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of horrible stuff that's still out there being used and yeah. you know the big, the big the big debate about glyphosate these days particularly like in in the courts uh and the, the whole you know slew of lawsuits that bear monsanto got hit with about glyphosate is really actually more centered around like um residential and uh kind of um kind of landscape slash horticultural mm-hmm. use of the product um mm-hmm. And not, and not on like the broad acre agricultural use. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it really hasn't permeated into that, into that space yet. But I I wanted to reflect on, you know, one thing you pointed out, like this idea of like, you know, farmers, you know, and their families being harmed by, by these chemicals, every single, um, well, not every single, but the, the majority of the, the farmers that I know of that have started to move away from using these kinds of chemicals have done so for for reasons of either health issues or that glyphosate just kind of stopped working for them there's this there's this uh, phenomenon of uh, uh, glyphosate resistance where you know after a while certain pernicious weeds just won't be killed by it anymore and so mm-hmm. that farmers have to kind of step back and 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 re reassess their their whole approach. And a lot of times they they move towards more you know, biological uh, types of interventions. And mm-hmm. and that's sort of the that's sort of the catalyst towards thinking more uh, regeneratively and ecologically in their farming. Yeah. But so just want to emphasize that. But a lot of a lot of these farmers actually have you know health issues, and it's all about sort of making the connection between the two and I think once once farmers are able to make make those connections you know like grandma died of, of lymphoma I wonder yeah. you know I wonder where that came from right like yeah. being able to make those connections I think is is critical to start sort of changing
2: yeah
1: uh, perspectives on on the effects of these things
2: we all have to learn the hard way isn't that the truth I mean even for myself that's yeah. how I got into this whole kind of fields, but before we switch to what you're actually doing as like for regenerative agriculture one more thing about glyphosate that i want you to explain if you can is um explain for people roundup ready corn or so glyphosate is roundup people have heard that word more like do you Mm -hmm. so what's the difference between just being sprayed with glyphosate or if it's like roundup ready corn
1: that's that's a great uh, a great distinction, yeah. So, and this this gets into the whole uh, GMO debate too. So it's an it, it's important nuance, and often you know these things just get so oversimplified in the public discourse that it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to to really get the real picture. So I'm glad you brought this up. So, corn, soybeans, I think cotton, and and some other big commodity crops have you know certain certain varieties of these seeds have been Genetically modified to tolerate applications of, of of glyphosate or roundup, which is its its brand name, mm-hmm. so what that means is they identified gene I, I forget the exact gene that um, imparts glyphosate resistance you know, in that, that they sort of use to genetically modify these species, but essentially uh, what roundup ready uh, crops are, are crops that you know, once they've uh, emerged and are you know in, in their very young stage, but there's still a lot of weed pressure in the field, so lots of weeds growing around these crops that, that you would traditionally you know, sort of cultivate manually to kill, what you can do is come through with a big tank sprayer and spray everything, and all, all the weeds will die in theory, but the corn or the soybean or whatever Roundup Ready crop you're 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 working with um, does not get killed by by the glyphosate because it's been genetically modified to tolerate that. Which means that you can and sometimes this happens early on in the growth stage. Farmers hit the corn, you know, multiple times with glyphosate. You know, sort of soaks into the into the plant into the soil without the plant actually dying, but killing all the weeds around it. Um, and so that's you know one way that you know glyphosate residue can you know make it into a an actual food product that then either gets you know fed to livestock or may even end up you know uh, as you know your tortilla chip or something um, mm-hmm. but another way that glyphosate is used too that I just want to bring up is is, is as a desiccant which means that it's, it's, it's a drying agent so mm-hmm. you know using it on crops that don't Tolerate it, uh, like like wheat and barley and other what are called small grains. Mm-hmm. Um, these crops are usually harvested in you know in the northern hemisphere here and in in, um, in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, sort of in the mid summer, mm-hmm. um, we're approaching harvest time here in the Hudson Valley. You know, over the next month or so, and and the timing of that is important because if if you don't get the crop off um, in time, you know. Like before a big rain, for instance then you you run the risk of developing um, uh, mycotoxins or toxins that are associated mm-hmm. with 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 fungi like uh, like fusarium and things like that mm-hmm. um, and so you want to be able to time your harvest right where the crop's dry enough to take off the field, but you don't you know you're not running the risk of of mold toxicity so what but what a lot of farmers uh, do is actually. Induce drying with glyphosate so they spray glyphosate directly on the crop right before harvest and that is probably the single most potent way of like ending up with glyphosate residue on yeah. crops you know yeah, ready so, for human
2: consumption right because they're very close to being harvested so they don't have the chance of it being rinsed off by rains or growing through it or whatever like you're, it's just like a yeah. fresh residue that's crazy
1: right And it's mostly done with wheat, which then gets milled and ends up, you know, in baking flour. And then, you know, you're making all kinds of stuff
0: Bread, cereal.
1: it's like really, it's hitting it at that, at that final stage where the likelihood that it's going to end up in your food is much greater than say the corn example that I gave.
2: Yeah. And you know, I don't know, like celiac disease went through the roof diagnostically. No one had it. Now everyone can't eat gluten. And you're like, And that's the kind of question. Is it, is it the gluten or is it the glyphosate killing off all your good bacteria? And then you can't handle foods that you used to be able to break down because your gut microbiome makes a lot of your enzymes or helps you break down foods that sometimes we don't have natural enzymes for. So, you Mm -hmm. know, that's a big thing that that toxicity uh, to our own health. And a big part of it is a lot of people cannot eat wheat. And then they're like, Oh, but I can eat wheat when I'm in, you know, somewhere in Europe. And you're like, well, you know, let's think about that for a second. It's still the same grain it's, and it still has the same protein in it. Maybe that's part of it. But, you know, I, I I was in, um, I have celiac disease and I was in at the airport and I was ordering something and I was like making sure it was gluten-free and and this guy beside me he was about 20 and he kind of shocked me because like and he's like are you sure it's a gluten allergy or is it a glyphosate problem and I was like who is this kid and oh, wow. he and he was actually working far out in like the north of Canada where like nothing everything's untouched nothing's sprayed there's some um you know, Aboriginal, um, people living there and they went there and they brought glyphosate there and they started having all these gut problems that they've never had before. And that's where that was coming from. So he was just flying back from like none of it or something like that, like where, you know, and they had these crazy symptoms coming up in, in, in these people that had never been exposed to, to these chemicals. So, you know, it's obviously a huge part of it. Like it's, it's just, yeah, it's crazy.
1: Yeah. We, we, we definitely need a lot more research to that effect to really nail it down, but all the signals point to, yeah, this stuff is bad news. Yeah. Very bad news.
2: Okay. So now let's go into like, what do you do that's different that people can learn from and look for? I know you talk about something about tilling, which I don't know anything about, but tilling is bad or tillage is bad.
1: No, I I think tillage has got has gotten a bad rap, mm-hmm. um, and again, it's like it's it's similar to how you think about livestock production, right? It's not mm-hmm. it's not that you know tillage is bad or good. It's not that livestock production is bad or good, but it's it's how you how you use it as a tool.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so, what is tillage first, and then how do you use it? And just get into all the stuff you guys are doing.
1: Yeah, tillage is a is a sort of broad category. Of you know um, tasks and operations that you do in the field in order to prepare uh, prepare a field for for seeding and or to uh, control weeds. Actually, tillage is one of the biggest um, you know tools that organic farmers have in their toolbox to to control weed pressure. Okay. Uh, because so so essentially tillage sort of either fully inverts if you're talking about like the like the first tillage implement which is called a moldboard plow you know which actually inverts about you know uh 10 you know 10 inches of soil or so uh fully inverts it um upside down and two two different you know other types of tillage that kind of vary in intensity to the extent that you're like either inverting or mixing or sort of fluffing, but generally just creating favorable conditions for, you know, sowing your crop. And then at the same time, taking the seed bank and inverting it and, you know, uh, knocking back that, that weed pressure. So, yeah, so that's, that's tillage. Essentially, you know, there's different kinds of tools that you pull behind a tractor, but it's, but it's, it very much kind of disturbs. Soil inverts it, mixes it in some way. And so the bad rap that tillage gets is if you're constantly tilling, uh, mm-hmm. you know, year over year, multiple mm-hmm. times a year, then the downside of that is you can really destroy your soil structure, which oh. uh, which allows soil to hold water, uh, which, you know, creates habitat for microorganisms. Um, and so you can create really adverse... Uh, conditioned if you're just sort of wantonly and not consciously tilling every year, no matter what you're doing. And you know what created the Dust Bowl was essentially that kind of approach to tillage, which is like you're plowing fence row to fence row all the way up to the riverbank to put in as much wheat as you can to mm-hmm. feed the world, right? Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, like the soil lost its structure, lost its ability to sort uh, of stay put okay. because constantly you know being uh sort of pulverized and it didn't have a living cover on it for for you know a long enough period of time and then all of a sudden you got the this perfect storm of you know dry conditions and wind and then boom dust uh, okay
2: so, got it um yeah cuz i was just i read your article that you had written and it it you guys somehow um suppress and reduce the need for so much tillage
1: yeah yeah so no, I can I I can dig deep I can dig deeper into that. Um, you, know, you as I said, like you, conscious tillage is, is is important and and you know what I mean by that is like certain crops, you know, don't require as much tillage as others. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you you referred to crop rotation early on, and that's mm-hmm. that's a really really important part of of organic uh, organic regenerative agriculture, which is that you know you create a sequence. Of of crops year over year that you know work well together that kind of work in synergy and that allow you to you know achieve uh, certain goals like 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 reducing tillage mm-hmm. um, and so we you know on the farms that that we research on sort of early on when we were managing the the, the transition um, on this larger piece of about two thousand acres we were taking what was you know this you can hardly call it a rotation. It's like corn and soy every year, back and forth, back and mm-hmm, forth. Mm-hmm. And we created a more diverse um, rotation where we uh, incorporated, you know, a couple of different crops, like, like more, more of the small grains, wheat, barley, et cetera. Um, and then, you know, substituting in things like sunflowers and, and oats and peas and, and buckwheat and things like that. And the sequence of crops that you that you lay out kind of allow you to reduce the amount of tillage you have to do throughout the, the lifespan of that rotation. So when you're coming back through, um, you know, after four to seven years, you're doing less tillage than you would have if you were just, you know, conventionally growing corn and tilling every year.
2: Okay.
1: Okay. That makes Um, sense. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, And so what do you do? in order to protect the crops from weeds or pests that without using these heavy duty chemicals?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So what, what we've done in the past it's sort of multifaceted, but again, it, it has a lot to do with rotation. And so one, one thing that we've done uh, that, that we've done in the past is create what some folks would call like a full rotation. Others, like in in Great Britain they call it uh, lay farming a lay meaning like a like a pasture where you have multiple years of pasture so mm-hmm. perennials that we were talking about before grasses mm-hmm. legumes mm-hmm. like clover things like that that you can like make hay out of or, or or graze and then you know after you know four years or so you come through with a plow and you and you invert that and create a seed bed and then you you know, all the while throughout that whole, you know, perennial period where you've been grazing and making hay, all of the weed seeds have been sort of suppressed by the living cover uh, mm-hmm. of, of the grasses. And then when you invert that with, with tillage and you plant, say, a corn crop, then your weed pressure is significantly reduced. And then you can come through if you do have weeds with what's called a cultivator, which you know basically allows you to just till in between the rows of corn that can give you an, an additional level of of, of of weed protection. And also it's just it's really important to have balanced fertility in the soil because pests and, and diseases are opportunistic just like they are, you know, for for human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, illness for us you know happens when you know our immune system is compromised when we we're not getting the right nutrition when we're just overall kind of run down and mm-hmm. we don't have what we need. But if you give plants everything that they need, if you're balancing fertility and you're you know you're you're feeding fertility where needed, you know both in the soil and also uh, you know, spraying foliar fertilizers uh, and things like that, then, then your 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 weed pressure and your and your pest pressure will just inherently be uh be, be less because the plant is thriving. Yeah. It's out competing and it's just generally uh fortified to well, animals coming at it.
2: It's a good analogy for the human gut, right? So it's like we have all these parasites present in people's guts when they don't have like a good terrain, right? So if we picture like you know, that soil, that rich soil is protective, just like a rich microbiome in our gut is our own kind of soil where the, the pests and the weeds don't show up or the disease when, when you have that nice, robust, um, healthy soil or basis for your, what makes you healthy. So it's always really just crazy to me when we reconnect with like the earth and nature, right. We've become so disconnected, like as disconnected as you can be right. We're, we're on uh on a different wavelength. And I think it's just like, it brings it all kind of back together. Um, but like, I mean, yeah. you, you and I, we met from like a health perspective because I was helping you with your gut. Like we, I have severe gut issues. Right. And it's like such a struggle to keep it healthy when, when, Cause we didn't get, or a lot of the times because we didn't know and our parents were exposing us to these different chemicals, right? Like that's when our, our whole- strong gut microbiome gets kind of formed and why we have so many kids these days that are so unhealthy because they're never getting that chance that like our parents or our parents' parents had that are living till much longer like this is the first year where it's going to be like a shortened lifespan yeah. did your own health kind of bring you into the whole organic kind of farming thing because you grew up on a farm correct?
1: I didn't grow up on a farm but my family owned
2: owned a uh, big farm
1: owned a farm and- in in illinois yeah when I was a kid so we would spend spend you know parts of the summer out there when I was a kid so i I was you know ex- exposed to agriculture uh, as a kid on the farm that my family owned we we had been sort of leasing it out to to tenants that that we were a family that, oh, that we came very close to it and, that, and that we ultimately you know sold the farm to when I was in high school but uh okay got it but uh yeah to your but to your question you know it it did play a role i mean I think what what got me to where I am today, you know, it was a journey that also included just my, my love for food. I started working in restaurants when I was very young. Kind of started out in the in the dish pit and worked my way up into the kitchen. And I've always loved food, and so I say I sort of followed the followed the food out the back door of the kitchen into the mm-hmm. field, trying mm-hmm. to learn more about how it's how it's grown and how it's produced. And I kind of just fell in love with that from a sort of romantic perspective, but mm-hmm. as I got more and more into farming and learning about, you know, the the nuances of how agriculture is done from like, you know, small scale market gardening, you know, mm-hmm. that's always usually organic in practice because it's the most, you know, cost effective way of, mm-hmm. of, of growing at that scale, all the way up to the really large scale, you know, types of systems that, you know, we're using the worst kinds of, of substances. And I just, you know, it always freaked me out to think about you know going in that direction as a farmer, and I just kind of dug in deep to like there's got to be another way that this can't be the way that you know we're going to sustain a healthy human population for the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, and my own yeah my own health journey as well you know once I kind of peeling once I started to peel back the layers of the onion made me realize yeah there's probably a lot um, that The agricultural industry, the conventional ag industry has contributed to my, you know, my issues just by virtue of like being a, being a kid and eating the things that I ate, you know, when I didn't know better, my parents didn't know better, you know, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, so... I guess our overreaching thing is, you know, start to educate yourself. I I was ignorant. I'm trying to learn more about it. I mean, as I got deeper and deeper into trying to help other people with their health and my own health struggles, I mean, that's how I started to uncover, you know, what I should be eating and shouldn't be eating. And, and, you know, that's a good basis to protect us from multiple other diseases. So, um, you know, get to know your farmers, hopefully, like, I don't know if other farmers listen to this podcast, but I, you know, I don't know if you educate other farmers or or what, what, like, you guys are, are just leading by example over there. But I think it's really important um, that this starts to become mainstream again. And, and like, what do you think about, like, I don't know, most of the farmland in the world being bought up by um, Mr. Bill Gates over there?
1: I was going to say his his priorities for for agriculture are they, they are sort of the antithesis of um, agroecology of, of organic regenerative agriculture that that has a has an appropriate scale that is community based that you know is zero input that doesn't need patented seeds or patented chemical interventions so. It's concerning. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it it really is in a big way. I mean, farmland is 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 already expensive, and you, mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, speculation on farmland in the way that you know Bill Gates has been, you know, uh, has been doing is is yeah, it's it's, it's is, scary because if you pay attention to the things that you know, in his in his philanthropic capitalistic model that he's like you know investing in and then kind of um, you know, promoting around the world, it's, it, it doesn't line up with, you know, where yeah. I think we need to go.
2: No, it's going to hurt a lot more people than it's going to help. But I mean, I don't know yeah. when people start catching on, but I guess we just put it out there as much as we can and, you know, try to get across that, you know, this stuff is, you know, people are capable of doing it. It's going to protect the farmers. It's going to protect the people in taking the food, whether it's. direct crops or the the animals that you're eating but you know the end goal being lab made meat with all of this crap like is is the worst thing for climate change because what what we need more industrial areas like you know so you know just support your support your local farmers and educate yourself because you know the world's
1: changing absolutely i think that's that's the best thing anybody can really do is is really get to know farmers in your area and have have direct conversations with them ask Mm -hmm. them about their practices that that's the best way to know I mean you can go to the supermarket and look for an organic seal but you know a lot of times you're not getting what you think you're getting especially now that uh corporate America has captured that that regulatory body uh, in the U.S. Yeah.
2: So yeah, just yeah, small markets. Find your farmers. Thank you so much. I know we have a hard stop, but you were so informative, and I think that you know it'll open a lot of people's eyes that aren't familiar with any of this. And thank you so much for your time.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me on, Stephanie. I really hope, uh, yeah, I I hope we can reach some listeners and and open some eyes here. So thank you uh, for the opportunity.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the What Happens in Vegas podcast. To help support the show, please leave us a rating and review. Also, head to VegasClinic.com, that's V-A-G-U-S-Clinic.com, to check out free resources, how to work with us, and more.